Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investment topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Chris Bloomstrand, Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. A very warm welcome to everyone listening to another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. It is a real pleasure to have all three of the guys with me now, Chris Bloomstrand, Elliot Turner, and Phil Ordway. Uh, this week, uh, since Chris uh, didn't uh, join us the last couple of weeks, he's back. Uh, we're going to have him go first. Uh, then we're going to go to Phil and finally to Elliot. Each has a, a great topic picked for today, and I look forward to the discussion. So without further ado, Chris, I'm going to turn it uh, to you. Yeah, thanks, John. Good to be back with you guys. It was uh, nice to get myself out of town for a little bit of business last week for a couple of days and see some folks, clients. It's been an odd year being cooped up, but uh, miss being on with you guys. Both the recordings, both both weeks of podcasts were terrific. I regret having missed all of the conversations about sports, but you know, sports being an unending thing and the final, you know, never over until the fat lady sings. I suppose there's more we can chew on uh, over the ongoing weeks and even today. I thought I'd talk about, um, given given that this is October 15th, and for those that cannot get their, their act together any sooner, it's tax filing deadline here for extenders. So I just, before we got on, signed my e-file on the tax return and had been spending too much time with our accountants. But I thought what I do since we're in an election year is just kind of think through some things that that may evolve if we get any changes in the structure of the White House and the Senate. I think it looks like a foregone conclusion that the House of Representatives is going to stay firmly in control of the Democrats. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, as kind of a just an observer of politics, I try to not immerse myself. I was more a fan of politics when I was a kid. You know, I try to stay fairly neutral. I'm I'm very conservative on things like fiscal. I find myself very kind of socially liberal. Uh, but you know, of the things that that matter as an investor, you know, I think a lot about federal deficits and the size of our debt, which are problematic. And you know, we're sitting here in the middle of a pandemic, and we never would have predicted it. And you kind of think through what the deficit was going to look like going into the year projections were for about a trillion dollars and on what was going to be a economy of north of 22 trillion dollars you know deficit spending of of north of 4% which to me is far too high you'd rather have a deficit run at 2 or 3% of gdp in my opinion and so we were already going to run a deficit as it turns out you know here we are with unemployment up and business activity down industrial production down the huge involvement by the treasury and the federal reserve and so wound up instead of running a trillion dollar deficit for the for the federal fiscal year, which ends September 30th, we ran north of a $3 trillion deficit. And here we sit watching the White House and the House Democrats volley back and forth between the next round of stimulus. Uh, we're not yet clear of the pandemic. And so, you know, we've got this thing bracketed now between $1.8 trillion and $2.2 trillion. So having run a deficit 
at 15% of GDP last year, which was you know well above uh, the 10% that we ran at the depths of the Great Recession, you know, rivaling levels run during World War II and World War I, it sure looks like uh, we're not going to run uh, any kind of fiscally prudent um, fiscal policy. And you know, we can argue about the merits of whether we need more stimulus, not need more stimulus. But then you come in and overlay, you know, changes to, to fiscal policy. You know, the Fed on the monetary side looks committed to backstop households and, and business. Uh, you've had Fed officials here in the last handful of days give speeches about, you know, per, potentially never being able to extricate themselves from supporting the treasury market and perpetually financing deficit spending and and one of the great fears that I have is that we can't reduce the scope of government in terms of its involvement in fiscal and monetary affairs, and that we run budget deficits at it and above the 5% level from here to eternity. So if you go back a couple of years when we passed the, the TCJA at the end of 2017, I think what people lose sight of is a lot of those changes were not permanent. Now, the big change cutting the marginal corporate tax rate from 35% to 21%, that was a permanent change. But a lot of the big drivers of increase in, in corporate profits came from things like the, the acceler- accelerated depreciation on steroids. I mean, you know, anybody spending CapEx was allowed to depreciate uh, fixed assets in a single year versus, you know, over the life expectancy of the assets. So 40 years at two and a half percent a year of full depreciation. Well, that, that depreciation benefit uh, has been and will continue to be structured to phase out. And so you were going to lose some of that in 20% increments beginning in 2023. And the whole thing was going to be done by 2026. You know, the, the TCJ eliminated the corporate AMT plan or, or AMT taxes which is a big a big deal. We taxed undistributed foreign earnings at rates of 8% on cash. I want to say it was 15 or 16% on uh, equipment. And, you know, we were spreading that tax over a period of eight years. And so a lot of that was, was, was slated to go away anyway. You know, we have a Biden proposal. You know, I think, I think if we have status quo, which is always my preference, I'd, I'd always rather see a divided Washington. I'd rather not see the Republicans control the White House and both chambers of Congress. I'd rather not see the Democrats control both changes uh, chambers. So, you know, if you, if you think through, you know, kind of a, a Democratic win in the Senate and also a Democratic win in the White House, and you look at the Biden tax proposal, you know, to me, it's, it, it's a pretty big tax increase on corporate. And the majority of the TCJA, as you guys know, was geared toward the corporate. I think in my in my personal world, I don't think I had a tax cut. I think if you lived in a higher tax state, and our marginal rate in Missouri is six percent, if you lived in a higher tax state, and and, and you guys know this because uh, you both are, you know, I think I think individuals that made a decent amount of money had a tax increase. You know, I think I was probably neutral on the cut, but but the the majority of the benefit inured for the benefit of corporations. And, you know, we've got a Biden proposal that that looks to be scored at raising on the order of $3 trillion in taxes over a 10-year period of time, split pre- pretty evenly between businesses and households. And the preponderance of the household side falls on those making north of $400,000 a year. And you've got an increase in long-term capital gains rates 
uh, doubling uh, from 20 to 39.6%. Ditto that for dividends. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot that's onerous for those that make money who happen to be those that employ people in this country. But, you know, you, you go back to that marginal rate, which had been cut from 35 to 21. There's a proposal to increase that rate to 28%. Well, you can take the profits of that are generated domestically, and you saw an immediate benefit to the bottom lines of you know companies that generate you know large amounts of profits in the U.S. Costco's was very clearly beneficial and easy to estimate. That has not been competed away yet. Berkshire Hathaway, with with the majority of its profits generated domestically, was a huge beneficiary. So just just the math on cutting from thirty five to twenty one was effectively you know about a twenty one and a half percent increase on the portion of profits. That were earned in the United States. So, you know, if you do the inverse of that and you cut and you increase rates back to 28%, that's about a nine and a half percent tax increase. So, if you take the S&P 500 and roughly half of profits are generated domestically, half abroad, you know, you're looking at about a five percent cut to the bottom line. But then you layer on reintroduction of the alternative minimum tax on book profits north of hundred million dollars. You've got a global intangible tax on income that doubles from 105 to 21%. There's a lot there that, that you know, just, just the 21 to 28 is scored at $100 billion a year, a trillion dollars over 10 years. And so, you know, I think what you'll see Wall Street do and you'll see investors do is try to figure out who's going to benefit from the tax cuts, who's going to benefit uh, from any tax increases prospectively under a Biden plan. You got to roll up your sleeves and do the work. But what, what gives me pause and, and causes me great concern is, that you know we change tax policy at times where you know the, the the net result can be punitive to the overall economy. So you take you know federal revenues under the TCJA for the last handful of years. You know revenues did go up despite the tax cut in rates, but not by much. But the problem we have is a spending problem. We cannot get our fiscal house in order, and it does not matter for the last forty years who occupied the Wall Street, who occupied both chambers of Congress, we have a massive spending problem in government. And as I pointed out earlier, I just don't know how in the world, you know, running, you know, federal debt that's now going to run at 140% of GDP, how if we're going to run perpetual deficits north of 5%, you know, we're probably going to run another 10 to 15% for 2021. I, I don't know how the government, how the Federal Reserve extricates themselves from the economy and we get back on a footing where we can run modest deficits and grow nominal GDP at a healthy clip. I think we've kind of boxed ourselves into a corner. And so just, you know, this, this being tax week for me, just a lot of thinking about taxes and would be interested to get you guys' perspectives on, you know, who, who may be some beneficiaries and who may be harmed to the extent we have any changes in tax policy prospectively. Yeah, one of the unfortunate things about the timing of the tax TJCA was that, you know, it came well into an expansion when, you know, if a recession were to have happened, we probably should have used the ammo then. And sure enough, you know, you end up a couple of years later with COVID needing to um, aggressively deploy the federal balance sheet. And, you know, then here we are. One of the interesting things, though, I think a lot of the kind of market leading companies today and by market leading i mean the the ones that have been performing well and pulling the market up they had not really paid the statutory tax rate at all for 
as long as I'd known them to exist. And, you know, a lot of some of these companies actually manage themselves to not make money so that they don't do it. But the ones that actually do make enough money, think of like Apple, they were never paying the statutory rate. Um, so I think for a lot of companies, it's not necessarily going to matter that much. But then there are, you know, I, I don't really know. I didn't pay enough attention to where things are going. But for a lot of partnerships, there were meaningful benefits being able to treat certain column uh, self-practicing or really small businesses where they're more like job-like than business-like at, at the corporate preferential rates. I feel like there could be a lot of pain in those kinds of things. I don't know. What, what are some areas you maybe uh, let Phil take a, a crack at this and you as well? Uh, what what areas you're thinking are going to be the biggest beneficiaries or, or uh, pain points? I don't have a great answer to this, unfortunately. I mean, I've thought about it a little bit. I probably spend less time thinking about taxes and tax policy and the implications than a lot of other people in this industry do. Certainly, I think, which you pointed out earlier, Chris, you know, the, the implications from 2017 were pretty immediate and pretty clear for businesses like Costco. I'd also point out in the US, um, domestically focused and chartered banks, certainly, I mean, they were, you know, kind of the last vestige of larger companies, public companies or otherwise that actually paid a full tax rate rather than offshoring a lot of things and using various uh, avenues at their disposal to lower their their actual cash tax rate. So, yeah, I don't I don't have a strong view as to which way this will go. I mean, I'm I'm with you that it does seem like the horse is out of the barn in terms of uh, viewing the world as a as a somewhat of a, a any exercise in fiscal discipline. Let's put it that way is not in vogue right now in either party. I don't think. And I what happened earlier this year where you know the economy came to a screeching halt in a very short period of time and we mailed out checks to a lot of people and. You know that I think rightly was viewed as is the appropriate move at the time by many people. Not perfect, not without its problems, but I think the fact that it happened and didn't lead to even worse outcomes probably pushes us further down that road, at least in the short and medium term. And where this all ends up, you know, when when you start to actually look at the numbers, um, and you have to do it in a relative way, right? Relative to the size of the economy, relative to the size of the country, relative to the rest of the world. It's it can be hard to wrap your head around it and figure out where this might end up in five, 10, 25 years. It's it's tough. I certainly don't have any strongly held convictions in that regard. Yeah, I think the the you know the struggle is a large part of the TCGA on the corporate side of the ledger really only put us on par and on a more even footing with the way the rest of global business was taxed. You know, Elliot, to your point, you know, we we did not have all of our businesses paying the 35% statutory tax and then another three or four when you throw in state taxes. A lot of businesses do, retailers, you know, but places where you have R&D credits, what have you, they were not, you know, clearly to the extent profits were earned abroad, you didn't have tax that level. So going into 2018, you know, in in prior years, the average marginal tax rate when you took just the broad swath of the S&P 500 was 26 or 27%. So we really have driven it down to 21. And, you know, the places I mentioned that were the big beneficiaries are those that had the ability to increase capital spending benefit from that accelerated depreciation and, you know, drive profitability. And if you had a useful place to spend CapEx that was accretive and that earned good returns on the capital spent, 
that was a huge beneficiary. You know, if we don't extend those depreciation tax benefits, you know, you've got to worry that that we see a backing off. And again, I think we have a I think we have a federal spending problem. You know, you look at the at the years of history and federal spending does not go down. We actually had a four or five or six year period of time where we had sequestration, which ran off. And so that that fairly did keep a check on federal spending after the Great Recession. But that when that rolled off and we introduced TCJA, and we did drive up federal revenues a little bit. I mean, unemployment levels got down to record lows. And, you know, I think the White House takes credit for, for, for policy decisions. And you know, more of that was on the back of a strong economy. But we actually did have a nominal increase in federal revenues, despite the cuts in tax rates, if you will. Um, but we never got a check on spending. And to the point of being late in an economic expansion, by by never getting a handle on 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 your outlays, then when you get fa- you face yourself with a with a deep economic downturn, not necessarily in a pandemic, but just a deep recession, we didn't run the federal le- ledger back down to a reasonable level, and so we've simply just layered on more and more deficits, and now here we are in crisis mode. And again, I don't know how we extricate ourselves. It's until we get a handle on spending, and you know, you look at the big places where we spend money. You know, two thirds of federal spending is mandatory. You know, we're, you know, we have demographic issues with the retiring of the boomers. Social Security spending is not going to go down. It's going to go up. You know, having just done my taxes and looking at my health care premiums, I can tell you it is absolute insanity. And we're going to have a case in front of the Supreme Court here right after the election. If you paid any attention to the hearings with Amy Coney Barrett, you know, she'll be sitting for, you know, some level of ruling on, on Obamacare and the ACA. And the problem I struggle with is, you know, if I take the amount of money that as an employer and, and, and you know, f- effectively self-financing my health care, not self-insuring, I'm paying both sides of the premium, you know, at $2,000 a month in premiums, $24,000 a year, you layer on a modestly high deductible plan with a deductible of six or twelve or six or twelve thousand dollars. I mean, at six thousand dollars, you're looking at thirty thousand dollars before you utilize healthcare. Well, if median household income is sixty thousand dollars, it is insane that half of median household income is going to pay for healthcare before you spend a dollar of service. And so, until you make the the payer the patient, and I'm off on. I've gone off a of tax policy here, but until you make the payer the patient, it's just irreconcilable. You know, I've said for 30 years as an investor that we could not continue to increase health healthcare spending and education spending faster than GDP forever. And yet every year of my existence, we've we've done exactly that. And so I fear we're getting to a tipping point and we start playing around with tax policy at a point where the economy is in no shape to tolerate you know, much move at the margin. And if we don't have a willingness in Washington by the legislative and the executive branches to rein in spending where we can, we've just got a problem. So I've ranted because I'm always in a foul mood on estimated tax days and on on my tax filing day. But, you know, I don't see how to extricate ourselves. And, you know, the the easiest place, you know, kind of to to get back on point of trying to figure out who's going to win, who's going to lose is, you know, if we're going to indeed raise the rate from 20, 21 to 28 and the AMT comes back in, I mean, you can measure where taxes are paid. And you know, I think it's fair to say the overall stock market, just broadly speaking, if we had an immediate 10% bump from after-tax profitability, 
you're apt to have about a 5% hit. And at whatever point that gets baked in or not, I don't know. You know, we don't invest that way. You know, I don't invest based on, you know, tax policy, tax rates. Um, you know, but I think if we kind of go back to, and, and, and we're not even, you know, it's not even to say that, that, that if successful, they move the rate from 21 to 28, it's not inconceivable. They take the corporate rate back to 35%. And, you know, at that level, you know, that really is punitive to the bottom line. You know, some of these phase outs of the TCJA absolutely not only affect the bottom line, but operating cash flow. And so again, some of this was already going to expire. And we have a federal government that's out of control on the spending front. I get having to do it during a pandemic, but I don't know how they stop. And, you know, somebody smarter than me and somebody smarter than the four of us are going to have to figure out how to put a rein in on federal spending. And I, I just don't see a, I don't see a good solution. And here we are, most of us still waiting for uh, Infrastructure Week, which was like the one promised spending program of the last, uh, you know, four years. So, yeah, I mean, it's a tough spot. It's interesting. I'm of the camp that uh, don't believe deficits uh, matter too, too much and there are ways to handle and, and work through these problems. Like you mentioned, most of the spending is automatically uh, kind of triggered, so to speak. Like there's not much discretion over it. A lot of the discretion is at the margin or really, you know, places something like you could lower military exp- uh, expenditures. But overall, you know, there's a lot less room to maneuver than than should be or than, than one would hope to have. Um, but, you know, I've kind of, it really depends what's done and how the uh, extra tax revenue is treated. If it does go to something like infrastructure and is allocated in a way and, and, and kind of spent in a way where it's more investment than pure expense, um, you could end up in a pretty good virtuous cycle. But, you know, it remains to be seen exactly uh, how that would go. Um, and one of the things I always wonder about is, you know, I'd seen workups in 08 uh, when it was far more uh, hot button topic, but like, you know, it does make sense to increase the deficit at a certain amount per year when you think about like cap structure optimization in a corporation. Uh, you know, people are a little more sanguine taking on debt than they are speaking or thinking in that way in government terms. Like if you were lo- to look at the balance sheet and aggregate of the U.S. federal government, you know, we hear a lot about the debt, the debt, the debt, but we rarely hear about the assets and the powers and responsibilities of the government that come with it all. Um, And they're considerable assets and they're things that, you know, uh, if it ever, if push ever came to shove, you know, could be used to kind of uh, offset some of the, the obligations. But, you know, hopefully we never reach that point. Well, revenue spending deficits and debt should all be measured in my book as a, as a percentage of nominal GDP. And the struggle I have is we have not produced strong top-line growth coming out of the Great Recession. Nominal GDP grew by about 3% a year. Sales at the S&P 500 grew at about 3% a year. And so running deficit spending... But you wouldn't do that with a company, right? You wouldn't say you're measuring their debt balance against their... uh, I mean, obviously, you'd look at their coverage ratios on their income and whatnot, but you'd also look at it relative to the balance sheet. 
well, no doubt, but you can't grow debt faster than the business itself grows in perpetuity, or you're going to run into problems during an economic downturn. I mean, regardless whether, you know, tax policy is going to wind up, you know, reducing uh, deductions measured as against EBITDA versus just EBIT, which is coming soon, you can't grow debt faster than the top line. You've seen too many businesses do it. You know, I think no. I think properly. You know, a, a deficit spending is 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 has been proven to be manageable, but only manageable relative to the underlying growth of the economy and the size of the economy. Again, I think if we're not going to grow nominal GDP, or or but you know, better better put, real GDP. If we'll have very little growth in real GDP, maybe one or two percent, you ought not continue to grow debt and deficits faster than. On, in a real basis, one or two percent of GDP. We're already at the point where we can't service our debt. We're already at the point where, you know, the Fed's talking about never being able to move short-term rates, you know, for the foreseeable future at least. But you know, perhaps never off of the zero bound. We will never, in our investing lifetime, see interest rates back at five or seven percent of GDP in a normally functioning economy. Debt levels are so high when you introduce then household debt and corporate debt at 400% of the economy, we can't have nominal interest rates at levels that we would have been used to in our earlier lifetimes. You know, we have to run them at zero. And when you run them at zero, why not continue growing spending at five or 10% a year? You know, we, we've just got, you know, we've baked ourselves into what's necessarily going to have to be continue massive transfer of wealth from those that have capital to those that don't. And believe me, if we're going to run 5% deficits in a world that's not growing, effectively, this becomes debt monetization. You know, we've talked about that in past, and I've talked about it in past letters. But my, again, my, my more broad fear is that, is that the Fed cannot extricate themselves from financing all of deficit spending, most or all of deficit spending. And if we don't have the willpower to rein in spending at some level, then we are going to have a transition of wealth. I mean, the only way to pay for federal spending and debt, new treasury issuance, is through tax policy or through inflation. And, you know, if you take the Biden plan and we are going to raise taxes both on, you know, folks making money and on business, and we're really going to raise an incremental $3 trillion above and beyond what was projected and scored, you know, it, it, in an economy that doesn't grow, that's problematic. And so, you know, we're we're, gonna, we're looking at a big redistribution of wealth, and we're looking at simply, you know, maintaining sustenance spending. And I've got a problem with that. I've got a problem with that because as an investor, you, you broadly can't have nominal GDP, and you nominally can't have the the top line not growing. And you get to the point where federal spending and and government debt loses its efficacy. You know, there's very much a law of diminishing returns, and I think we're, we've been—I think we've passed that point in the last handful of years. And so, to the extent we're going to spend on infrastructure, you take the broken window theory. You know, you break a window. I mean, it—you know—it impacts and it benefits the glazier, but that's money that the baker whose window was broken that does not have the capital to spend elsewhere. And so, you know, if we're going to spend money on infrastructure, it's got to come from somewhere. And on a net-net basis, it's not accretive to GDP. So I'm, I'm very, very, very concerned here during an election year that, that the lack of willpower and what I've seen in the last couple, three decades, four decades, from all politicians on the spending front is just problematic. And you're right. There's, there's very little that can be done in terms of mandatory spending. But 
you know, if we're not going to grow the top line and we're going to continue to increase spending, we're going down a path that's not very good from an investment standpoint. And, and that's my overarching fear. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, uh, on the one hand, I don't ever want interest rates to get to where they were when I was younger, having been uh, born in 82. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, I think the the modernization of debt is a real reality we might have to face going forward. And I think it was notable when Powell said he'd be willing, and this was something Yellen wasn't willing to do, to let inflation overshoot the 2% target for as long as it has undershot it. So we've almost had the reverse of what, in uh, nominal terms, what should have been over the last few years. Uh, the last few years, God, it's you know almost a decade now. Um, so there could be some considerable time where they let things get a little hotter. Um, and, you know, in terms of investment in those kinds of regimes in the past, equities have actually been an all right, pretty good place to be, uh, both on a relative and absolute basis. Um, it's some other areas that you definitely want to be fearful of, but it's something, you know, we all got to think about. Well, hopefully we don't go down the path of having to consider what's happened in the Venezuelan stock market and Caracas, um, <laughs> a great outcome. It's At a, least we're a sovereign you know, issuer. It's a little little better in, in that situation. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing I'd say is I agree that there's been almost no reason for hope on this front in the last several decades. And we've still made progress. The world's still made progress. And that's an anecdote. It's not something I would really want to bank everything on. I agree. There's plenty of reason for concern, but I also think we tend to push things a little too far in one direction and then actually get up to the edge of the cliff and and sober up a little bit. And I think that could well be the case here. And then circling back to the healthcare topic, which I think you mentioned earlier as being related, I totally agree. I mean, yes, there was an issue of international tax comparability and competitiveness, but if you look at what how the U.S. healthcare system is structured. I think pretty much everybody would agree that it's insane and needs to be fixed. Now, how that's done is obviously (laughs) the the much harder question. And there have been some high-profile efforts run by people a lot smarter in this area than I am in anything that haven't gone anywhere. So I'm not saying there's an easy fix there, but there's six, seven, eight points of GDP going down the tubes because of our healthcare situation and the, and the, the tax on business because most plans are are sponsored and, and sort of the waste that's embedded in the system on top of it. So if we can fix that, I'd immediately become way more optimistic on a range of fronts. You know, until then, uh, I don't have much to cling to in terms of hard data or logic or reason other than hoping we don't ever actually take that step off the edge of the cliff, wherever the line may be. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts, John? From a European European perspective. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I guess I'm kind of uh, jumping in from uh, 10,000 miles away and from a country where I've lived now, and that's Switzerland, uh, for the last 10 years. And uh, believe it or not, I still don't know the name of the president of the country or the head of government. I'm not as ignorant as this might sound, but that is how this country works. They've kind of settled the big issues and they've got a technocrat government and you don't hear the name of the head of that government that often. And actually you don't have to know it. So it's just a really stark contrast to kind of uh, 
listening to U.S. news where you really cannot go for five minutes without hearing, uh, you know, some names uh, of of the candidates and so forth. You know, I recently had a had a really interesting letter hit my inbox from uh, Sri Viswanathan at SVN Capital, and uh, he included a chart there on um, the stock market performance under. Democratic and Republican administrations since uh, 1900, and it was like double the performance under Democrat uh, administrations, which maybe goes a little bit against what we might expect, but actually it's it's done better. Uh, but the big point that he was making is if you had actually been in the market just during Republican administrations or just during Democrat you wouldn't have gotten even 10% of the total return that you would have gotten if you had been in the market the whole time. So I think sometimes maybe we make too much of uh, these kinds of things on the political side. There's enough kind of structural gridlock in Washington and enough power that the um, you know special interests and lobbyists have that I'm not sure we're going to see any huge uh, changes barring any a real revolution. And I don't think that's really on the table uh, right now. So I guess I'm pretty sanguine about kind of the economic uh, outcomes. Um, you know, don't really want to get into any other outcomes uh, in this discussion because that that could get a little messy. But I think everyone listening knows where Europe stands on uh, on, on Trump and so forth. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much uh, all I'd have. So I think uh, unless uh, any of you guys want to jump in, we're probably ready to move on to uh, Phil for uh, his topic of the week. Sure. I have a much lighter uh, topic this week than, these, than that discussion. So uh, hopefully this will be informative and entertaining in a, in a different realm. So we, as we were just discussing, we, we had an interesting conversation about, uh, Elliot brought up, the concept of a post-hype sleeper, and we kind of got off on a digressive, you know, course of analytics and sports and how it pertains to investing. And I was I was circling back on an article I read about three years ago, which really has stuck in my mind, and it it was brought back to my attention this week, uh, or maybe about a week ago, with the news about Billy Bean, who we talked about is kind of the second godfather of the sports analytics revolution after Bill James really pioneered it several decades ago, and it's it's amazing to me how slowly that actually built speed and how some really obvious things, you know, the fact that a three-pointer was more efficient and more desirable than a long two or even a mid-range two, you know, just, you know, stealing second base is kind of a low-value proposition. Just some really basic stuff that didn't require the advent of quantum computing to figure out still took, you know, decades to get going from there. So the news that just came out, in case anyone has missed it, was that Billy Bean's probably moving on from the Oakland A's and likely going to tackle soccer, European football next um, with the advent of this. Of course, it's a SPAC because everything in 2020 seems to be a SPAC. Um, there's a SPAC called Redbird Acquisition. Uh, we'll link to these articles in the S1 in the show notes, but they're, they're likely going to be purchasing the Fenway Sports Group which has ownership stakes and, and basically control of the, of the Boston Red Sox and Liverpool, along with some other assets. And so Billy Bean's going to be tackling potentially a whole new sport, one that he didn't play, but has been involved with for a decade or more, one that he knows really well. And so what I'm curious about and what I'd, I'd like to get 
everyone's take on is what areas in both sports and, and specifically in investing in business are still so poorly understood and poorly measured. So I think in baseball now it's pretty clear that you know the the Moneyball revolution that Billy Bean ushered in was so effective that now it's kind of played out. It's kind of gotten to to use a crude analogy where quantitative value investing was maybe 20 years ago or 30 or 40 years ago, even where Ben Graham came along and said, look, if you can buy a company at a, you know, a net net kind of value, it's hard to lose money. And if you hold a portfolio of those over time, you're going to clean up. And that's basically what happened in baseball. So that now I think the, comp- the, the clubs that are making the next step have married analytics with scouting and development and taken a very dative, data intensive and objective approach, but it just has to morph. So we're kind of on the 2.0 or 3.0 in baseball. If you look at basketball, probably still in the one and a half version between versions 1.0 and 2.0. Again, so the article I was referring to is actually about three years ago, written by Ben Cohn at the Wall Street Journal, who writes some fantastic stuff. And I don't know if any of the three of you guys are, are basketball fans, but you probably know James Harden. He's one of the more prominent players in the NBA. He's been fantastic for years, but he has a very unique style. And when you watch him play, he's not particularly big by NBA standards doesn't have a particularly long wingspan. He's not brilliantly athletic in terms of his vertical leap or anything like that. Do you guys know the one thing that he measures out at at about 99, the 99th percentile of NBA players? The NBA off the players top. off the top. Three-pointers? Well, yeah, well, sort of. Yeah, but sort of, but not that's exactly not exactly where I'm, where I'm going with this. So the one weird analytical measure you can capture for him if you were to you know put him through a battery of tests which they do at various places where that you're usually using floor plates with pressure sensors sensors to measure how quickly you can start and stop jump turn and cut run forward run back all that kind of thing uh, you know he measured right in the middle for pretty much all of those things compared to his NBA peers but the number one thing that he just made that jumped off the the page using the 98th and 98th percent 98 and 99th percentile was the ability to stop to decelerate so most people think of quickness as the ability to accelerate and go from stopped to quick and instead he's proven to massive effect that well of course it's more important to be able to stop because in sports everybody's in motion and the ability to change direction and stop is more important than the ability to go from the standing start, you know, zero to 60, so to speak, because you, you very rarely go from zero to 60. And yet here we are in sports like the NFL, where we still measure the 40-yard dash in a straight line. I mean, almost never in football do players run a 40-yard dash in a straight line, right? Not only do you rarely get 40 yards of open space, but it's almost never in a straight line. So it's an irrelevant metric, but it still gets used and cited very regularly. In basketball, you often cite a vertical where, again, you're starting from a standing starting from a standing stop and jumping straight up. Again, it almost never happens. But the ability to decelerate is the reason why James Harden gets so much separation. And I think, I haven't seen the data for this. I'd love if somebody could point it out. But I think if you looked at some of the best players in the world in other sports, particularly soccer, that's probably what separates them as well. You look at a guy like Mo Salah in Liverpool and his ability to create space for himself and score in tight spaces. Certainly Leo Messi is just an absolute genius at that. And that to me is just an example of an obvious thing. It's like the advent of, wait, the three-pointer is worth more than the two-pointer. Obviously, the ability to decelerate should be probably the single most important measure of athletic ability. 
And it just has gotten silly. I mean, this article was written more than three years ago and it's been covered, but it still doesn't seem to get as much attention as you would think. And my strong bet would be over the next five and 10 years, it'll get way more attention. And then if I look forward to business and investing, you know, if baseball's gone from 1.0 to 2.0 or even 3.0 now, I feel like business and investing is still leaps and bounds and light years ahead of sports. When I look at the ability to capture market inefficiencies and take in massive amounts of data and distill it and find what's really important, particularly as it pertains to short-term market pricing and any particular inefficiencies you might find on a short-term basis that can either be taken advantage of over a few days, a few weeks, certainly a few minutes, any sort of arbitrage opportunity. I mean, it's just game over. And it's been game over for 10 years. I mean, I, I think the number of times I've seen any sort of informational edge that could be repeated by a systematic process you know it's it's all captured by the handful of primo quants that use incredible resources on the artificial intelligence and machine learning fronts to do that so i don't know of any obvious analog to the deceleration effect in sports that would apply to investing in business because i just don't see it's going to be tiny little incremental bits of progress. I still think there's a massive opportunity in business and investing to take longer term effects and opportunities and exploit those, particularly where you can, to extend the analogy, identify opportunity via analysis and then marry it with a development process and a longer time horizon. So you're not just picking off really cheap free agents um, below what their market worth are and using that to win games. You're finding attractive prospects, potentially younger, potentially in different geographies, not just through the traditional college or minor league routes. And then you're putting them into a more robust farm system and you have a better framework for analyzing how they may contribute to a lineup. And you just have a more holistic data-driven approach. It's not just one little tiny factor that, that could be arbitraged away. And I think the same is true in business. And this gets back to what we were talking about with Snowflake uh, last week or the week prior, where you know some of these leading venture capital firms have actually adopted this framework of finding an opportunity and then actually running it from A to Z. So they find the opportunity, they handpick the investors, the entrepreneurs, the management team, and it's just run from top to bottom. And I think that's the great big opportunity. So I'm curious if you guys have anything that stands out um, in this regard, either in terms of a, a metric or a framework or an analytical data point that, that is still just so obviously underexploited, either in business or investing or in sports, I guess, for that matter. Well, I was trying to jump in. I'd, I'd read that on the on the James Harden, and you know, obviously the the ability to stop plus the length of his beard naturally <laughs> jump out. I, I think it's I think in in the major sports certainly I think it's I think the the Billy Bean the intellectual approach really has been developed. I, I had a chance here when the Rams were still in St. Louis to spend a fair amount of time with the guys that ran the organization, and they were up to their eyeballs in analytics and breaking the game down. You know, obviously we have the Cardinals in town and, you know, I think the way they run their farm club system and apply, you know, all of the concepts that Billy Bean and those guys did, you know, batting average, you know, being lesser of a better metric than on base percentage, but football has come a long way. And, and I'd break, I'd break your, your, your thoughts and comments down maybe into two buckets. One and it all goes to management style. Um, but you know, you're looking for player type and you're looking for athleticism. And I think football of all the other sports has really done an amazing job. They, they, you know, the, the combine will still have offensive and defensive linemen run the 40 yard dash because that's what they do. But when they, they get into player specific development and testing, 
and you do your on-site workouts with a club, you're doing very position-specific drills, unlike what was done even 10 years ago. You know, the, the Cleveland Browns hired Paul De, De Podesta, right? I mean, he, he yep. worked with Billy Bean at the A's, and, yep. you know, he's got Cleveland, and I'm not going to attribute it to him, but, you know, he's got Cleveland at 3-1, and one, I think, which is probably their first winning record early in a season since probably 1789. You know, you think about the management side of the game and the decision-making that goes on at various points in a, in a game you know, the decision and, and the probabilities of when it makes sense to, to go for uh, a first down on fourth down and when it doesn't make sense, when to punt, when not to punt. You know, a lot of those analytics have been done. The, the sport that's just blown me away, and maybe it's just one dude, but Bryson DeChambeau, who won the U.S. Yeah. Open, yeah, that's a good one. You know, was kind of laughed at, um, you know, by the heavyweights of the game. Um, you know, Brooks Kapka would get on him, I think, kind of in a kidding way, but for the time he would spend over punts or, or, or over putts. But you go through and, 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 you know, now that he's won a U.S. Open and he's won some big events and he's the odds-on favorite to win at Augusta, a lot of people are stepping back saying, wow, I mean, this is way beyond Tiger Woods getting himself fit and in shape, which the game of golf has adopted. I mean, this guy, if you guys follow golf at all, has just taken this this high-tech approach to training and to his game. And it's almost bizarre. You listen to the the conversations that he has with his caddy are just wild. And so, you know, they were talking about him at the U.S. Open and his teaching pro for his whole life, and I forget the guy's name, but gave him a book called The Golfing Machine by, I think it was somebody, somebody Kelly. And, and this guy from an early age in his mid-teens kind of adopted this very scientific approach to his game. So, you know, all of his shafts are the same length, which is unheard of. You know, they're all set at 10 degrees upright. All of the heads have the same weight. You know, he's even adopted this concept on when to leave the flag stick in now that it's allowed and when to take it out on putts. He said only at the USGA or only only at USGA events, which in his, in his case would be the US Open, he's always going to leave them in otherwise. And so, you know, he points out the, the fiberglass content in a normal PGA Tour stop is flexible or malleable enough to where you want to bang the ball into the flagstick. He's got a term for it called coefficient of restitution of flagature or some crazy thing like that. The guys put on, and, and this is golf, and so you talk about you know measuring Harden's ability to stop and, and, and change directions in a hurry. And a lot of that gets into plyometric training and explosiveness. But this dude put on 50 pounds since he became a PGA Touring pro. And he weighs something like 240 pounds and, and said a year ago or so, he wanted to get to 270, which you think about what I'm going at these days kind of gives me hope that you know maybe I'll be, a, be able to play the game again. But no, it's... That's it's, what's so interesting, I think, right? Is he said, he did that very intentionally, right? So all the, the other analytics stuff, I agree. Like he's a physics major. He studied the stuff very intensively and the flag stick and the, you know, the exact trajectory of his ball launch and all the analytics he's done over there. It's fascinating stuff. But I think the the major insight is, and the only reason he won the US Open more or less is exactly what you said. Just like people had this aha moment that on-base percentage matters more than batting average, that stealing second base, maybe not such a great idea, that a three-pointer is worth more than a two-pointer. His big idea was really taken partially from Tiger less explicitly, was just that the farther you hit the ball, you have a big advantage over the rest of the field, right? So he actually set out about a year ago. He put on that 40 pounds really just during the winter during in the quarantine. COVID, yeah. yeah, and so 
his big idea, like like mine with with James Harden and deceleration, as it should apply to to soccer and European football and most sports, really, is deceleration matters more than acceleration. And in his case, you know, these golf courses that were meant to discourage the bomb and gouge, where you just hit it a mile down the fairway, or and you miss the fairway, even you you gouge it out of the rough. And Wingfoot was supposed to prevent that from being effective, but he proved that was definitely not the case. So. You know, it's amazing to me how much success you can have when you just take one big idea that matters and take it very seriously. And I think that more than all of his shtick about the analytics is what's really separated him recently. Yeah, force equals mass times acceleration, right? And so he, yeah, he just got his ball speed over 200 miles an hour in Vegas last week. The ball speed at launch off the driver. And, you know, he was, that was a goal. And he just achieved it after about a year of, of dedicated work. I mean, most of the time, 180, 185 would be considered pretty nuts. And he he's hitting them over 200. I mean, he he carried a 300 and something yard par four last week with an iron off the tee. I mean, it's just stuff we haven't seen before. And uh, it's going to be pretty interesting. So are there other examples like that in sports? Or do you think that's kind of one-off? No, I think, you know, you know, all the individual sports, you know, measuring, you know, the swimmers, you know, measuring body type. And, and there's a lot of, I, I, I think we're way, way down the road in terms of the science of sports and measuring the physicality and, and, and what's required and just the way folks train. The, the, you know, I, I go back to, you know, sport 20, 30, 40 years ago and very, very not scientific. Um, you know, you knew how to lift and train but, you know, you weren't doing as many explosive lifts. And, you know, they figured that out 20 or so years ago, watching the Olympic lifters. And that became, you know, a more integral part of your training. Yeah, I think, to me, you know, I go up and down the sports that I kind of pay attention to. And I think there's a lot more to it than I think there. I think a lot more have adopted, you know, the management style overlaid with the physicality and, and the proper way to train. Um, and like I, I say, if, if they got to it in golf, golf would be the last place. I mean, the Masters... Kind of back to DeChambeau and, and I'll and I'll stop, but you know that you know I read an article a couple of weeks ago, Golf Digest or one of them that talked about the, that he may lose some of his physics and scientific advantage because at the Masters they don't let these guys use their laser yardage books. You know that have you know they have these topographical maps that will measure a, a tenth of a degree of undulation on a green where they're trying to get speed and undulation right. So they're, they're allowed to use the, the yardage books that have been made by hand, where a guy like Phil, who has you know, 25 or 30 years of playing at Augusta and you know making handwritten notes when they play the practice rounds and in, in debrief on the real rounds, that's allowed. So DeChambeau, who's very technical, you listen to him talk with his caddy, and I have no idea what the guy's talking about when he talks about a putt rolling at like 10 and a half miles. If it was rolling at 10.2 miles an hour, I would make the putt, and if it was rolling at 10.4, I'd miss it on the high side. Well, who thinks in terms of how fast a putt is rolling on a miles per hour basis? It's crazy. But so, so we'll see at the Masters. I, you know, I think you know, in one event, you know, is a one-off, and anybody can win on any given Sunday. But be interesting to see if 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 the Masters lack of using the yardage book impacts Deshambo, who with Kepka hurt, you know, I think becomes the odds-on favorite to win the tournament. Yeah, you guys have been talking a little more about the two sports that I follow less than others, but there's some observations, I think, to tie in that, you know, touch on these points. In baseball, you kind of think about our last two weeks on the pod where we went from talking about, you know, we talked about the evolution of Moneyball to this, uh, you know, value uh, 
kind of transactional approach to finding value versus the value creation approach. I tend to believe that as these um, that that the exploitation of certain inefficiencies and the more they're done tend uh, have a way of creating new inefficiencies, and it's up to people to find them. So, like in between the value exploitation uh, and and creation phase, we didn't really talk much about like the revolution in pitch framing, in aligning a defense, <coughs> a defense like a fielding positioning posture with yeah. where you pitch toward. And then those create different kinds of opportunities. So, you know, um, one thing could open other kinds of doors. And there's kind of this period in the middle where you don't necessarily see what the next inefficiency will be, um, but it's going to happen way or another. I then also think about hockey where like there was a pretty damn good advanced stat that's existed for a long time in the form of plus minus. And there are all these new attempts to create different kinds of advanced stats. Um, the favored one is the Corsi, which is kind of like an aggregation of net shots kind of attempted and created versus shots against you. Um, and it's supposed to demonstrate you know, who's more capable of creating opportunities on net uh, than who isn't. But like at the end of the day, I feel like the simplest stat might still be the best. Like those players who can control the puck uh, and dominate possession while they're on the ice, you know, you're disproportionately advantaged. How do you create opportunities? It's by having the puck. And, you know, on the, on the other side, I think there's some like intangibles that don't really, or really on the player uh, metrics more so than statistic metrics that matter a lot. Like, I have this theory that uh, undersized but highly physical and fast players are uh, hugely advantaged in the league. And I think a lot of the best teams from recent years have at least like a handful of these kinds of players and some of the best players we've seen in recent generations. I mean, people like Ovechkin and Sidney Crosby, sure, they're great goal scorers and play creators, but these guys are both small yet can play extremely physical at times. So like that's kind of basic, but... Um, I think those things are there. And then the the third sport that I'd tie in, um, when we were at Idea Week in February, uh, Yako Lusu gave a really fascinating presentation. He works in European football as an agent and works with a club and talked about just like, I, th I think, you know, I didn't really know enough about the structure of how this all works there. Um, but from a club's perspective, there are really so many different opportunities and avenues to kind of find and create value that don't exist in the US sports. So like teams have the opportunity to advance leagues and become more valuable in doing so. Um, but also teams like existing in certain countries could try to find these monopolies on local talent or they could send scouts to players where others aren't, nurture that talent and trade it for either pools of cash that they could redeploy into their business or you know other kinds of players to kind of accelerate their, their uh, capabilities. So. Um, you know, I think that's interesting to think about from a team and a portfolio management perspective sort of thing. Um, and I think there are places where that could be applied a little more smartly in some of the U.S. sports. And perhaps just knowing about that that layer of those multiple layers of inefficiencies is part of what attracts Billy Bean uh, to that world. Um, so those are three three different areas that I think about in this conversation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And those are great points. I, I would reiterate as far as hockey, I don't, it's probably the sport I know the least in this context, but I would 
put if you're trying to scout players in advance, I think it's really hard and hockey's probably particularly hard, but deceleration just seems like another obvious one where if you could measure how quickly a guy can stop, he would just have a major advantage over other players. And maybe the differential in hockey would be thinner than in other sports. I'm not sure. I mean, that would be interesting. And it would be a little bit harder to measure because you couldn't use force plates like they're using in basketball and soccer and football, but it just seems like an obvious one. And then, and just to wrap it up, I mean, my, my last thought would be as it does apply to business and investing, just as deceleration would be my one big thought to capture athleticism as kind of the, the top of mind metric and scouting and player development, mine would be something on the governance and capital allocation topics that we talked about, particularly the conversation we had with, with Larry Cunningham, because it just seems like still such an obvious area for improvement. You have these great companies led by brilliant management teams that still just don't know how to think about dividends and buybacks and acquisitions and SPACs and IPOs and stuff where we're just stuck, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago with some very antiquated processes and measures. So uh, I don't know that there's one metric or one stat or data point that would get us there on that front, but that would certainly be the area where I'd be spending my, my time and attention and focus. It's interesting, Elliot, on on hockey. You know, they, you know, you talk to the guys in the game, and and you know, they they're introducing the science. They're measuring, you know, guys that would have a lower pass completion rate, but they measure it against the passes that are made that give a team scoring opportunity. And I think they borrowed some of that from soccer. But then you just take raw physicality, kind of back to Phil, your point. And you know, you I watched the St. Louis Blues play for years and years. I've been here for over twenty five years in St. Louis. And, you know, they would, they would wind up, you know, getting in the, the Stanley Cup playoffs, which is a season within a season. And they, they could never make it to the next level. And, you know, you go back four or five years and they just got physically beat up by San Jose in a play, playoff series. In the prior year, I think they got beat up by Vancouver. And so last year when they won the Cup, they completely changed their lineup over the course of a two-year period of time and wound up simply building the biggest roster in hockey, not, not by player number, because they're all they're all set at the same number, but but by by size of player. And so, you know, they, they put big forwards on the ice and they had big defensemen and they leaned on the forecheck and would dump the puck in the zone and they would just kick your ass and wound up kind of coasting through the, the the Western playoffs and getting to Boston, who played a very similar breed of hockey and wound up going to a seven game. And it was just a raw physical game of hockey. And so, you know, there where you've known that size matters and you've known from the days of youth hockey that size matters. And a lot of times that benefited the younger kid. You still go back to, we were losing because of a lack of physicality and we just simply need to get bigger. And that that's not much of a scientific conclusion. That was just watching the result and realizing we need to we need to mass up, and they did it, and you know won the cup for the first time in club history. Yeah, I think that's totally right, and you see that with Tampa. Although the one distinction I'd make is it doesn't necessarily require bigger players. Although you know Tampa has Hedman towering over the blue line, but they have a lot of smaller but extremely physical players up front, um, and just having that element, that dimension of the game. I mean, especially when you get to the playoffs, and it's more about like wearing down your opponent over. A number of games, it makes such a difference. It's like it, it's it's the biggest game changer. Um, but being able to dominate possession empowers you to be on the forecheck more too, though, and take that pressure to them. 
Um, as physical as you are, if you're standing on your heels, you can only, you know, use your power so much. So it's been weird seeing the evolution of the game from like the early nineties when the power forward emerged and, you know, really clutching and grabbing and kind of slower game took shape to a wide open game after the second strike. And, you know, I, I still think, you know, every time you have these situations where there's a huge amount of change injected. It takes years to find a new equilibrium and we're not quite there, but definitely starting to see a recipe that's like repeatable in the NHL. Though you can't, like you're saying, you can't substantiate it or or follow it very cleanly with any uh, advanced stat yet. Well, it's a fun topic. I'm glad you guys brought it up over the last couple of weeks. It's, you know, we're sitting, I'm sitting here conjecturing that you know, we've already adopted a lot of the science and maybe there's not that much more to go. And Phil, you made the point that there's a correlation perhaps to the investing world and, you know, perhaps we've exhausted a lot of the advantage, but at the end of the day, it's going to be fun to watch the evolution over the next five, 10, 15 years in sport in particular to see, you know, I bet we'll have the same conversation 15 years from now and realize that we were just in the infancy in the year 2020. Um, oh, well, that's true. Yeah. So that's where I think it's interesting. I don't know what the next, you know, technological advance will be to capture better data. I mean, the high speed, high resolution cameras and some of the stuff in all these sports were unthinkable 10 or 20 years ago. And I'm sure that'll be true 10 or 20 years from now. And I do think the evolution is continuous. It will, by definition, never stop. And you're right. We could definitely have this conversation 5, 10, 20 years from now. And I, I hope we do. I just think that it does have to evolve because just as with Ben Graham's net nets and classic book value style and value investing, having reached the end of its useful life many decades ago, I think you saw that with baseball, with the the Moneyball 1.0. And so they baseball's had to move on. And it's just the part of it that's interesting to me is I don't know quite exactly what's next, but there are some big ideas that stand out as close to no-brainers. And in some cases, they're actually pretty slow to to reach widespread adoption. So where the, where that happens, I think there's a real opportunity. You can have all the data and all the analytics in the world, and you can you can make the case in sport, you can make the case in investing, but management style and in the investing world, capital allocation and management. You know there are some CEOs and management teams that get it and do it right, and you have teams that run near identical businesses that don't do it well. So just an awful lot of value can be added uh, based on how you interpret data and how you block and tackle. I mean, at the end of the day, sports all about blocking and tackling, and you know, businesses and, and investing are, are all the same on, on that front. Music to my ears as a Jets fan. <laughs> Definitely, we see that in action every week. Or the yeah, I'll jump up, in. I'll jump in real quick, just because uh, maybe a little bit of a European football perspective here. I think um, you know everything you said, Phil, is spot on, um, and I do agree that we're starting to get to the point where you know, at the level that's visible to an audience, meaning how players are put on the field and and kind of where, you know, what positions they have and so forth. We're getting pretty smart in in most of the big clubs. Uh, It's getting pretty efficient, but I think there's still a ton of inefficiency to be exploited. And and that goes to to the comment that, you know, 10, 20 years from now, we'll look back at this and realize just how little developed uh, this actually was. And I think the inefficiencies, um, you know, come the further back you go kind of away from what uh, the fan sees. So that can be, 
uh, in actual player development. You know, I think, Elliot, you kind of alluded to this uh, when you talked about the MVP machine uh, last week. It's not just about, you know, buying uh, undervalued players, putting them in the best positions on the field, but it's actually about developing players in a really cost uh, effective way. So there's still, I'd say, a ton of inefficiency there. And then as you go back in time of a player's development, um, there's just a ton of inefficiency. I mean, you can just think of basically a player not uh, when he's ready to play in, uh, you know, the first team of a Liverpool but when he is in an under 15 uh, team, you know, there's just so much inefficiency at those levels in terms of uh, scouting, uh, developing those players. Uh, there's also, I think, some good points in a, in a book uh, by Malcolm Gladwell where he kind of talked about how in a lot of sports, um, the top players tend to be born earlier in a year just simple calendar stuff you know like january 1st you're gonna it's definitely true for hockey yeah that's for sure yeah, yeah you're gonna find a lot of players born in january february why because in those youth teams those extra few months of age make them bigger and more powerful and then they get uh, coached more they get more opportunities and over time they are better players so you know um one way to kind of fix that, obviously, has been to give those guys who are born later in the year more chances uh, in various ways uh, through this through these uh, youth development programs. Because if you weren't aware of that, you'd actually end up not developing a lot of players that could end up being uh, great players. So, you know, I do think we're gonna see a ton on that front um actually i follow european football quite closely because my son is a uh, is one is in one of the uh, youth development programs he's 14 and if you google on youtube just one kind of little interesting thing to look at because there's always these new um theories coming out uh, about what's the future of football and there's now this um Paris Saint-Germain under-19 coach uh, called Thiago Mota, who has this 2-7-2 formation and it's being hailed as potentially, not necessarily, but potentially the future of how European football will be played. And as part of this 2-7-2 formation, he actually views the goalkeeper as a midfielder. Now, it's kind of crazy stuff, but you can Google it and there are some uh, really good... uh, kind of video uh, explanations of that on YouTube. So I think we're just scratching the surface and it'll be really interesting to see where that goes. And obviously uh, there's a ton of investing analogies uh, as well. Yeah, and I think that's probably why somebody like Billy Bean would find it so interesting because to your point, there's not nine players and it's not a static start-stop. You have a discrete play. You know, In that sport, you have 11 players instead of nine and the play never really stops for at least 45 minutes. And so it's this continuous flow of data that can be harder to capture and harder to tweak or change you know, the outcomes based on your, your, your read of that data. But if you can get that right, the implications are massive because it's an enormous sport, tons of money, and there's just so much inefficiency there. I don't know about a 272, but that's kind of where I was going. It's like, you know, I, at least my read of it is like, again, baseball's implemented these massive shifts in, on the defensive side and, and 
European football and soccer seems to have not quite been as dramatic, even basketball, right? With some small ball lineups and some stuff has made some pretty interesting changes. Uh, American football seems to have been a little slower on that, whether it's going forward on fourth down or whatever. It just seems like they're a little bit uh, less radical in their uh, willingness to, to change things. But we'll have to see. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating stuff to me. Well, except football is a copycat league, and you know, for at the at the pro level, the the college level, down to the high school level, if if something works, it gets widely adopted pretty quickly, and that's probably the same for most of sport. I think that's that's probably most that's probably you know the case in the investing world as well. You get an offensive coordinator that gets some advantage with a new play scheme or a new formation. You know, if it works, the the defensive coordinators have to adapt. And once the DCs adapt, then the offensive coordinators have to make the next subsequent change. It uh, evolves. It, it, I'm I'm fascinated to see how the the Cleveland Browns franchise evolves. Like I say, with Dave Podesta there, you know, sitting at three and one, I'd be it'd be fun to get if you guys follow football. What your predictions are for their end of season record? Because he's he's been on the scene now for three or four years, and he's got some player personnel in place. And I think a man, a coaching staff in place that's that's better than Cleveland has had in years past. And at three and one, I'd say, I bet they make the playoffs and they wind up at ten and six. But it'll be interesting. But I think the core of that franchise for some of the the, the Billy Bean philosophy that he brings to the game, you know, if if they wind up being successful to the extent the NFL is behind the curve, they're going to catch up in a hurry. Terrific. Well, thanks, guys, for that discussion. Let's move on to Elliot for our third topic. All right. So with the House antitrust report, um, one of the when, when this whole potential uh, break up the tech companies idea started emerging, I decided to read into the history of the AT&T breakup, thinking it's like one of the um, recent examples of this more more recent uh, examples of some drastic uh, antitrust breakup of a major company um, in cutting edge technology. I know we don't necessarily think of AT&T that way, but to, you know, at a certain point they once were. And there's a great book by Steve Call or Call, I might be mispronouncing it, The Deal of the Century, The Breakup of AT&T. Um, it's not exactly a page turner, but it's a really interesting detailed history on the whole backdrop to the um, AT&T breakup. And I think one of the underlying plot themes throughout is this idea of unintended consequences. So much of how um, the industry ended up in, in this way and so much of what happened afterwards was really um, not the obvious of what you'd anticipate happening. Um, so the, the background to the story, it starts with kind of a history of William McGowan and MCI and what they were trying to do. Um, there was, you know, deregulation where, um, MCI was given an opportunity to compete in long distance and they did this at a lower price. Um, and it all happened amidst a backdrop of AT&T while facing rising inflation, kind of underinvesting in CapEx and, you know, not really making their network quite as strong as they had over, you know, the preceding decades. Um, and so the way AT&T's business model worked was that <clears throat> short haul, so like local calls, was a loss-making business. Um, and long distance was where they actually made the money. Um, so they had their loss leader that facilitated the long distance. And it was such an integrated system to the point where you actually didn't buy a telephone 
you leased your telephone from AT&T and connected it to, uh, you know, the lines. And AT&T really did everything. It was a true monopoly. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to think of actually renting your phone from, from the company in that sense. Um, but, you know, that's where things were. Um, you know, and one of the consequences of AT&T structure as a regulated monopoly is they weren't allowed to sell computers, computing equipment, or data services after a 1956 antitrust settlement. Um, and what I find interesting about that is AT&T and Bell Labs had like one of the foremost research institutions and was going as far uh, in advancing technology in those spaces as anyone, but they couldn't really monetize, they couldn't really commercialize or deploy some of that technology. So it kind of idled and was more like, call it pseudo, uh, uh, like university-like in that sense. Um, so after MCI filed for IPO in 1972, um, they started negotiations with AT&T for like how best to access these uh, local networks because you had to access the local network in, in order to be able to serve long distance network. Um, and AT&T was really playing hardball because they understood the reality that if they gave MCI access to their local network um, and MCI got to sell long distance to those people, well, AT&T would still have the loss leader, but they wouldn't have the revenues on their actual profit pool. So, you know, they understood how that imperiled their, their business. Um, so they were demanding like a CapEx contribution from MCI to support the local metrics. And MCI decided to play hardball and sued. And the DOJ eventually sued. And all this was amidst a backdrop of increasingly uh, deregulation-oriented uh, judiciary, deregulation-oriented DOJ, um, and, you know, just about every part of the government and administrative bureaucracy was kind of focused at this time on moving towards a more deregulated uh, economy in general. So like AT&T started realizing they had to decide what they wanted to do to protect their own P&L. Um, they started advancing this idea amidst the lawsuit. And by the way, the, the lawsuit started in 1974, I think it was. Um, they, towards the end of these negotiations, this, these negotiations went on for about six to eight years. Um, they started putting forward this idea of splitting off the local telcos and making them independent public entities um, and keeping everything else at AT&T under the premise being you get the lost leaders out of there and you still hang on to your profit pool and you start squeezing MCI for access to the local networks. And, you know, both AT&T and MCI as long distance carriers would have to pay for access to the localities. Um, AT&T thought they were getting the best businesses. And then, you know, like I introduced up above, unintended consequences, they ended up in, of everyone ended up in a very different situation than they thought they'd be when all was said and done. So, um, you know, the, the kind of story kind of ends with this idea that the locals were already in their first two years as independent public companies exceeding all expectations on how profitable they'd be. And AT&T within one year already warned on its profit. They weren't able to earn their 12.75% regulated uh, ceiling on ROE. MCI, who kind of advanced this action, saw their stock lose two thirds of its value because they started having to pay dollar for dollar what AT&T paid for access to the local network. So it went from $250 to $500 per customer to pay for that access. The baby bells were split off. There were uh, 22 different ones of them created out of it. Southwestern Bell was the biggest. Um, 
you had uh, like 9X and uh, Bell Atlantic, which were pretty big ones, and Bell South. Interestingly, the AT&T that we know today is actually Southwestern Bell, which then became SBC. They started rolling up a lot of the baby bells. 10 of the original 22 bells uh, are in what's now AT&T, which also includes, uh, Bell South was the other big one that went in there. It also includes Singular, which was formerly AT&T Wireless. Um, the hardware business was later separated into Lucent, which then merged with Alcatel and is now part of Nokia. Verizon, our other dominant phone company in the US, was also created out of the Bell system, um, but it was a wireless JV between Bell Atlantic and Vodafone that kind of created the name Verizon. And then eventually Bell Atlantic merged with GTE, which was like the only independent phone company in the US to become, and many, several years down the line, ended up buying the rest of the uh, Verizon wireless JV. So like the two dominant companies we're left with today are effectively AT&T having been split into two, but created into this one large en entity. And it's really interesting to think about how, you know, this whole system, this whole regulated monopoly, when you injected a whole lot of change, like everything reorganized itself in all different kinds of ways. And nothing that people expected to happen out of this actually happened. And here we are today where the world's like very different. Um, AT&T had some of the best internet technology and they never became a player in it at all. They invented, you know, Claude Shannon invented information theory in Bell Labs. Go figure that, you know, they really don't have, uh, nor do the pieces have much of a role to play in this. And, you know, I think that's just very interesting to think about it. So today, as we stare at what may be the very early stages of a push to break up our large tech companies, one has to wonder, you know, what sort of unintended consequences might happen. And unintended consequences need not be bad things because here, you know, this whole system unleashed a whole lot of innovation and a whole lot of like new creations of business models and brought in a lot of new players and different avenues and where they thought prices would rise originally, prices actually fell. You know, what sort of unintended consequences might be we might we be looking at if the large tech companies that exist today were to be broken up? Uh, who would be the biggest beneficiaries? Um, obviously, it's hard to anticipate what new technologies and what new competitors might emerge, but it's certainly possible to think about what a company like Google, where there's, you know, a big profit center and a bunch of loss leaders, what each would look like if they had their own individual corporate mandate and imperative to kind of pursue what was best for each of them, separate and apart from what's best for, you know, the bigger uh, Alphabet or Google entity. You know, you got to wonder what Amazon would look like without AWS there and being able to transfer profit pools to fund investments from one area to the next. Um, what Instagram would look like separate from Facebook uh, and WhatsApp would look like as a standalone company. You know, when the acquisitions happened, these things didn't have nearly the scale. Um, you know, what would happen in the whole advertising landscape. Um, so I think it's a really interesting and fun exercise. I'm curious if you guys have, you know, kind of studied these kinds of histories or thought about what effects uh, both intended and unintended might happen if we were to break up uh, these companies today. Is it a good idea? Is it overzealous from the regulators? You know, um, AT&T in part was like, um, the regulators weren't necessarily pushing that hard, but it was AT&T who kept playing really, really hard with MCI. And it was a competitor who brought the action and AT&T kind of like coaxed uh, almost out of hubris, the Justice Department to come after them. And the solution that ended up happening was one that was actually created and put out there by AT&T. So it's like, 
you know, there, there are weird dynamics that happen through this all. So, you know, curious to hear everyone's thoughts. Well, from, from have... my standpoint, it, it's been impossible to not watch this kind of slow-moving train wreck of the evolution of AT&T over, over my investing career. And, and, and I say that because anytime I would wind up with a new client relationship, individual especially, you know, the, these, these individual investors all had the original AT&T. They all brought these baby bells into the portfolio. And, you know, at the point where it was obvious that, that, that the baby bells generated a lot of cash flow and didn't have a lot of use for new capital, AT&T had gone down the path. And, and I think you're right. It was the MCI deal. You know, and ultimately that, that allowed Sprint into the equation. MCI actually, I think, carried the, the, the network for Sprint. But you had, you had in the by, by the late '80s, you know, kind of six, seven years post the Baby Bell spinoffs, you had the cellular players coming into the marketplace. I mean, I had a friend of mine whose dad sold for Motorola, and he had the you know the fancy new four or five thousand dollar phone. You know, AT and T goes out and buys Macaw Cellular, and you know, there's an evolution of acquisitions which. You know, I've watched, I've had friends that have run the directory business for the original Southwestern Bell, which did ultimately buy AT&T and assume the name, who ultimately had, had, had the keys to the kingdom and, you know, had this upstart Google coming into the equation. The internet was already around. And, you know, these guys were convinced that because they had boots on the ground, that Google would not be as much of a disruptor as everybody as, as some thought they would be. And it was only a matter of a couple, three or four years before they lost their entire business effectively. But I watched that management team at AT&T not want to make the investment. So these guys knew they had the boots on the ground in terms of the sales force. And Whitaker and the guys, you know, the company was actually here in St. Louis. It, Whitaker moved them to St. Louis. And that's a funny story about not getting allowed into one of the local country clubs. So he picked up and moved the company. But he knew where the cash flow came from, but they were always trying to compete on the next iteration of what was sexy. And so that was cellular. And then at a point, you know, so they buy Macaw Cellular. And then at a point, I guess even previous to that, they bought NCR. And it was kind of their end around way to get to get into competing in PCs and the Unix server market. They bought, uh, and then they got into the cable businesses. I mean, they, they bought, you know, Media One. And they bought TCI from John Malone. And, you know, they had this, this era where they were going to compete in cable because that's where it was. And, you know, they didn't see that disruption coming. And then here in the more, you know, the more recent iteration, you know, they tried to do more cellular. They, they tried to buy T-Mobile. That got blocked. I think it was the Obama administration. But then they bought Mammoth Acquisitions in DirecTV and now in, it kind of back into the, the, the content business, buying Time Warner. Two mammoth acquisitions. Well, I mean, DirecTV's in the middle of the cord being cut. You know, Time Warner is sitting here in the middle of a, a feeding frenzy and a land grab in trying to develop content. And, you know, it's just kind of been, like I say, an absolute train wreck. The shareholder has suffered mightily with an AT&T. And kind of back to your point, it was a regulated monopoly. I mean, they had 90% market share in the late 1960s, early 70s. And they had that whole thing with Judge Green that went on for four or five or six years. And I just, I think they made bad decision after bad decision. And so you look at that through the lens of, you know, this this new, you know, regulatory push by the by, by Congress, by the House. Um, 
you know, you've got a couple of these tech businesses, you know, now kind of running from regulation on that front, but also thumbing their nose at Republicans. So you've got Democrats who don't like businesses with power and, you know, very high levels of profitability that have monopolistic characteristics, nothing like AT&T's granted monopoly was. I mean, I mean, these none of these businesses are even remotely close to what the monopoly was that AT&T had. But, you know, you wonder as big as they are and as, as, as successful as they've been, you know, if they're not going to have both parties of, of Washington coming at them full force and, and, and with, you know, barrels loaded. My sense is regulation's coming and, you know, perhaps you're right. You know, perhaps you're at the point where you don't know where the next iteration of, of competition is going to come from. Uh, you know, there was, there was just a 20-year, 30-year history of not only disruption, but deprofitization uh, with all of these businesses at AT&T, and it's been a disaster for the shareholder. And you just wonder, you know, for how much longer can these big tech businesses that sit atop the, the stock market continue to win and not be regulated for it? I mean, you look at just returns this year, the five big companies were up 38% for the first nine months of the year. And if you take all of the rest of the businesses in the S&P 500, they were down 4 or 5%. Well, that's been going on for four or five or six years. And these are mammoth businesses. And it sure looks like they've got a lot of regulatory problems, even though, like I say, they were nowhere near the monopolist that, that AT&T was, or even that Microsoft was. Microsoft seems to be the one that's been kind of left alone now. But they had major anti-competitive, antitrust issues, you know, as recently as 20 years ago, 22, you know, 25 years ago. It's going to be it's going to be a it's going to be an interesting uh, observation to see these things evolve here. Yeah, I don't have a ton to add. I would say I agree that regulation is probably coming. I think that seems to be the popular mood and the politically expedient move. So that'll probably win the day. As to what should be done or what the correct course would be, that's a really hard, complicated question, and I'm probably not even remotely capable of opining in an intelligent way on that. I, you know, in, in terms of antitrust, it's a tough argument. I mean, again, it's a complicated, deeply nuanced subject. I don't see a lot of consumer harm, at least of the typical commercial variety that you'd consider in this context. I think certain forms of big tech like social media have proven to be both very beneficial and outright poisonous to society at large, but that's kind of beyond the purview of a typical DOJ or antitrust review of competitive behavior. So, I mean, and in terms of competitive behavior, I mean, again, as I look around somewhat anecdotally, it still seems awfully competitive out there in a lot of ways for me. So I don't know where exactly a smoking gun would emerge as it, you know, would kind of need to, to force something really dramatic. Uh, you know, you look at what Microsoft faced in Europe, maybe that's a decent precedent. You know, again, let's it play it out to its extreme, though. I'm not sure if, you know, to use a, a, an example, I'm just completely making up if Facebook were to be required to spin off a property like Instagram. I'm not so sure that's a horrible outcome from a shareholder's perspective, if that's what you're worried about. So I'm not a shareholder, but if if I were, I just don't think that would keep me up at night. So that's about as far as I can go <laughs> drawing yeah, a line. Yeah, but that's in the one of the most interesting elements of it all, right? Because the fear was you break up AT&T, they said prices would get more expensive for the typical customer and shareholders would be hurt and everyone would be worse off. And in the end, actually, prices went way down on every kind of communication partly due to innovation, which was partly enabled by, you know, having gotten rid of a gatekeeper to the entire system. 
And shareholder returns went way up because these, you know, call it 23 separate companies, the 22 Baby Bells and, and Ma Bell, uh, each had their own corporate imperative that they pursued independently uh, with their own kind of philosophy and vector for value creation. And it all ended up tying back together, but in a very different way. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree that it's not a worry. I, I mean, as a shareholder in one of uh, these companies on the receiving end, being Google in particular, I'd almost welcome a push to kind of uh, shake it up and break it up and kind of unleash more entrepreneurial spirits in, in the uh, constituent pieces than the alternative. Uh, though I don't know if that's the right thing to do or if it's the right um, you know, regulatory imp- impetus. It's interesting, you know, the places where you've probably got more monopolistic behavior seem to be the ones that are not in the crosshairs necessarily yet. Apple, for example, to me, probably exhibits the most monopolistic behavior of, of the group of the five big techs, you know, with the, uh, with the app store, you know, commandeering 30 or so percent, you know, at some point, do you have an MCI that comes at them and, you know, if, if, if the Apple controls the pipe to the house, the pipe to the, the the consumer, the pipe to the phone. You know, at some point, do you get a competitive push on a regulatory front? But you know, they seem to be not in the crosshairs at this point. You know, I was well, you do have about, your MCI there. They're being sued by a group who who don't like the thirty percent tax led by uh, Epic uh, Games. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I was talking about the MCI back when you know back to the AT and T. Back to the AT and T point, but but I, I didn't think I, I didn't see that Apple was necessarily in the crosshairs of the House of Representatives here on this latest iteration. Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, they were mentioned and they were kind of given the most favorable treatment of them all. Yeah. But they do have a consortium of uh, you know App Store based companies, uh, Epic, Match, and a couple others that are suing them for uh, exactly what you're calling out. Yeah, and to me, if if you know you're going to upgrade the phone cycle, and Microsoft did this for years and years with their Windows suite and their operating systems, you know, if you're going to compel every one or two or three years and a, a kind of a mandatory upgrade to a thousand dollar now an eleven hundred dollar phone, and you effectively obsolete a piece of equipment that would otherwise and and perhaps should otherwise work, you know, that, that at some level that that will be deemed to be monopolistic behavior. You know, I had a totally random thought last night. I, was, I knew you were going to talk about AT&T, and, and I'm totally shifting gears, and apologize if I do, but you know, I'm sitting there trying to... I was thinking through the history of all of AT&T's acquisitions and how they've pivoted and kind of how they were five years ahead of obsolescence or, you know, like I say, disruption or even deprofitization. And thinking about the latest deal, you know, you had the you had the big time order deal that was 85 or $90 billion acquisition that the DOJ actually objected to. And what do they have now? And I, and I remembered as I was thinking about this, that, you know, you've got Netflix and, you know, you've got Disney that's going over the top and they've already got 60 plus million subscribers. You know, AT&T has plans for the businesses they bought inside of Time Warner and, you know, you've got this land grab. And I remembered that I, I'd only read the first page of Daniel Loeb's third point letter to Disney. I don't know if you guys saw the letter. You, you, mm-hmm. you, you probably did. So, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a large shareholder of Disney now. It's his largest holding. And he's effectively gone to him and said, you know, even though you've already cut the dividend for the pandemic, you ought to eliminate it or cut it further and take all of those cash flows and invest in content. 
So I read the rest of that letter last night at like 2.30 in the morning, and I, and I thought about it and thought that, that to me makes no sense. I mean, you know, this guy's classic Raider behavior. And, you know, if I were Disney, and, you know, I could be wrong on this, and I actually started drafting a letter this morning, uh, you know, kind of given how I was thinking it through last night. But you think about Disney's profitability in, in their studio business, and, you know, for years and years, they put out fewer movies than any other movie studio. And they always seem to have the blockbusters. So they made all the money, but, you know, they controlled content. And so to me, if you've got Netflix spending whatever it is, $13 billion, and you've got, you know, Apple now spending money producing content, and you've got inside of AT&T, their studio business producing content, there's, there's this land grab. And Loeb made the point that, you know, if you don't get it now, you're going to lose out. And i I, I, it struck me that I probably completely disagree. You know, if I were, if I were running Disney, I would approach it from the standpoint of, I better just make sure whatever content I put out is terrific. I don't want to overdo TV shows and put out crappy content. I think if Netflix continues to spend money and they produce lousy content, you're going to lose subscribers. And so this whole concept of customer acquisition cost and lifetime value comes to me in, in the most in the most valuable sense of you know not necessarily outspending and not necessarily outproducing and out generating content but but ensuring that the quality is right and then take whatever time is necessary to go through the evolutionary cord cutting process with your distribution with your direct TVs with your cable companies you know make the migration to live sport but but do it in a properly long sense. The problem with these raiders is, you know, these these activists is they want an immediate bang for their buck, and they've got a, a chart in the letter that basically shows you the PE expansion at Netflix and or and PE expansion at Adobe and the PE expansion at Microsoft. And to them, that's a win. If Microsoft is traded from ten times earnings to thirty times earnings, that's what you want. But if you're a very long term shareholder of Disney, I don't think that is what you want. So it's. To me, it ties into the AT&T breakup evolution. It ties into what they're trying to do today to, to your conversation about, about regulation and what's coming. And it's hard in that lens to, to run your business for the long term. And I think these five great tech companies have done that. They're probably going to wind up being penalized for it on the regulatory front. But you know, at the end of the day, if you're a long-term shareholder in any of these businesses, you've got to get it right. I don't know, what, what, I don't know if you guys have thoughts on that, my total tangent on on third point and Loeb and, and Disney, but I'd be So I want to run a theory by you on Disney that I saw over Twitter. I can't remember exactly who put it out, but right away I was like, aha, that makes sense. Because when Chapek responded the next day with the content uh, reorg, um, someone said, oh, it's now clear in hindsight that Loeb uh, just gave cover for Disney to make some choices that would have been a little harder to push down through the organization without having someone agitating from the outside. What do you think of that? I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I would hate to think that that Loeb would have that immediate impact on the thinking in terms of major strategic decisions and the timing of how you get right the transition of of going over the top. Again, I, I think if 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 the world is spending you know tens you know even hundreds of billions of dollars producing content, the vast majority of it's not going to be very good. And I would rather I would rather spend less and move the ship at the proper pace with the winds 
and not rush where you don't have to rush. If you've already got the king of content position and Disney is firmly entrenched there, I'd hate to think that you're going to run this thing faster than you otherwise should, but I don't know what that pace is. I mean, I'm not sitting inside Disney running it and it's not for me to give them advice. My, my advice to Disney would be do this at the pace you guys think makes sense. And I'm not sure that listening to a Danny Loeb who not necessarily is going to be in this stock for more than two years you know, for, for somebody that wants to be in the stock for 20 years, perhaps your thinking ought to be different. So I don't know that I followed then. So you you think, I, I think I probably follow and agree with your comments about the short-termism potentially at, at work here. But what about the dividend? Because this is kind of getting back to what I was talking about earlier. So, and I, I haven't paid any real attention to Disney, so for, forgive me, but they suspended the dividend or, or he's arguing that they should suspend it to put more money into streaming assets. He's arguing that they ought to, I think he argued that they ought to suspend the dividend, at least for the time being, and redirect all of that capital entirely into producing content to, to flow over the DTC channel, to flow over and the you Disney think, Plus app. And you think that's that's short-sighted, or you think it's just him trying to get a pop because that'll be viewed favorably, and then he'll use that pop to exit? No, I think he sees, I, I think he sees the transformation being very profitable. I think you know, by controlling 100% of the margin of your content, by not running Mulan and the other movies they've announced that are that are going to be run, you know, outside of the cinema and bringing them directly to the app. You know, Mulan may or may not have been a good one to do it with. You know, I think they wanted to test the waters with that. Now, I think I think Loeb's really looking for more of a short-term pop and, you know, maybe more creative to build content quickly. But, you know, Disney's library has permanence to it. Um, and I'm not sure the content that Netflix is building is going to have permanence. I'm not sure the content that AT&T is spending money on will have as much permanence as Disney. And so I don't think you want to be not their, It's not been their barrier to investing in more content. It's like right. having the right IP and the right yeah. angles to invest. So I think that was an important point you made in introducing this tangent idea, Chris. It's that, you know, like take it slow and methodically and add in the right layers to this whole uh, OTT approach. It's not about like just dumping quantities out there. It's, um, it's no different than, than Exxon, you know, spending 35 or $40 billion in 2014, 2015, you know, exploring for oil when the rest of the world had gone nuts and, and you were going to get to a position where you were over, you were overbuilding. It's, it's, it's when, when the world is overspending and driving you know, I, in my opinion, necessarily driving returns down to unattractive levels. If you're already in an envious position of of your content being the most valuable in the world, why spend for the short-term pop of having a larger library, having more shows? Because I tell you, if 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 you put lousy content on the Disney Plus app, you're not going to have the permanent lifetime subscriber. And you know, at least in the kids' world, it's on a seven or eight year roll. But you know, the point is. Disney's content tends to have permanence to it and nobody else's really does. And why get into a nuclear arms race when everybody else is going to outspend each other? And invariably, I don't think there's going to be a lot of success necessarily for all of the platforms that are overspending, in my opinion, today. Yeah, that could well be. I'm not going to opine on the on the content, but I think the, the capital question is exactly right because just as a basic housekeeping measure. If they needed capital, which apparently they don't, right? But if they ever needed capital to keep the dividend would be insane. But it's amazing to me how many times when when things get stressful, you see otherwise great companies like this just get totally befuddled by this 
basic question of is is the dividend some sort of sacred cow that <laughs> so I thought that was maybe where Dan Loeb was trying to take this. No, but. and 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 Disney had already trimmed the dividend back for the for the coronavirus. You know, the parks yeah. are closed, the studios are closed, so they've already taken the step to to shrink the dividend back. I, you know, I think they cut it in half, um, but he wants to see it cut further, and uh, you know, to 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 divert spending to the immediate production of content when everybody else is overspending. I mean, you got to make sure that you're getting the best actors. You got to be sure you're getting the best producers. I mean, you know, equate this to pro sports, right? I mean, there's only one LeBron James. You go back to the, you go back to Michael Jordan and when Nike signed Jordan, there was no number that would not have made sense to sign Michael Jordan, right? And, you know, if if you're playing professional sports, everybody's a good athlete, but there's only one or two of those guys and you better make sure you have it. And I think if you're Disney, you better make sure you're producing the blockbusters and not necessarily, you know, 15 movies a year. Um, I, Phil, you've talked about short-termism on a number of our podcasts. And when I, when I read Loeb's entire letter, I thought this guy is absolutely just looking for a, a, a quick pop and not necessarily trying to encourage the management of Disney to think in terms of a 20 or 30 year lens, which I think Disney has been doing. I think, I think they've been properly thinking in terms of a 20 or 30 year lens. And yeah, I was stunned to see the announcement immediately in the wake of the Loeb letter. And I don't know if it was necessarily in response to the Loeb letter, but I hope it was not. I hope they're a little more long-term and they're thinking there. I believe. I can't imagine. Story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say, I, look, I can point to plenty of cases where an activist has gone in to a situation like that big or small company and said, Hey guys, you know, we're here to help. Uh, what's going on? And management says, well, here's what we're working on. And the activist says, Oh, that sounds good. And then the plan comes out and the activist takes credit for it. And it had nothing to do. There's, there's no way this reorg and this shift in emphasis happened that quickly in response to a letter from, from Dan Loeb. I mean, that just seems to defy. All. I do believe he's there for a quick flip. The two times ever before this, he's jumped into companies I've been involved in. Like within a quarter of his letter, he's gone and it doesn't show up on, on his 13F. Um, so that wouldn't shock me. Although it's pretty pretty big position, but it's pretty liquid stock. You could get out of it pretty fast and a you know, little bit of a pop. How do you guys think that antitrust needs to evolve, perhaps? Because I think historically it was always, you know, what's going to happen to the price the consumer is paying? And now you've got some other dynamics, like Chris, you mentioned the app store. That's not directly the consumer, although indirectly there's a there's a link. Uh, but maybe more importantly, you know, we're we're at this point where we're aware of privacy, but we're not pricing it yet. You know, should privacy be something that's taken into consideration when you're talking about monopolies and, and antitrust here? And there's an added wrinkle, which is typically there is a customer, but some of these businesses, they have like they're two or even three sided marketplaces. And so they have more than one constituency. What, what might be good for one could really squeeze another. So I think, you know, right, like in the case of an app store vendor, that's very different than someone like AT&T selling you communication services. Um, But I'd say one farther step back in history, that's more recent history, this focus on consumer price, like farther back, it was about uh, excess power and how that power was exerted on 
like various uh, layers of, of various stakeholders. Um, so I think there could be more of this approach to rethinking it in terms of how how the the power grid uh, is has been regeared in the modern economy um, and how it's wheel, how power is wielded as a weapon against different stakeholders. Because I certainly think like you know I agree with Chris that a- a- Apple's App Store policies are about as egregious as they come. I think part of what Amazon does in their marketplace competing, uh, you know, as a first party with third party after they've already, you know, invited someone on, kind of gotten all the data and then uh, went beneath them uh, in price, you know, that sure consumers win, but there there are some consequences to that on uh, innovation and access of new supply to the markets. Um, So, yeah, I do think there's room to rethink it. I Definitely don't know uh, I, what the right answers are. I don't don't even know if I should be the one putting them out there. But um, I don't think the existing paradigm, and I think Ben Thompson's been one of the best writers on this. I don't think the existing paradigm's been written to handle today's kinds of companies. Well, and I, and I, I don't think I don't think the regulators necessarily are, are, are visionaries in terms of expecting competition that that's not obviously apparent already. I mean. You know, AT&T would not have necessarily known when the internet came along and you had DARPANET, but then you had ARPANET in the early 80s and right around the time of the, sp- the spinoff of the baby bells. You had ARPANET was on the TCP IP protocol and, you know, ultimately you were able to run voice local long distance, you know, over the internet, but you wouldn't have seen that coming. You know, cellular was coming at them, but it was early and I'm not sure they saw that cellular was going to displace traditional landline long distance. I'm not sure they saw that the cable line coming into the house was going to be able to carry, you know, a telephone call immediately as well. And so, you know, the the the, the need for the breakup of AT and T was, I think, fast approaching. Uh, its its need was was going away almost immediately. And you know, you wonder if if there's enough there's enough competition and disruption with the big five tech companies that the need for for regulation. And breaking them up it really is superfluous and unnecessary. I think you know markets tend to take care of themselves, and only when it's obviously apparent that you're in a position of, you know, pure monopoly. And you know they tend to be granted by governments. You know, I'd be a lot more concerned if I was a regulated electric utility today about the transition to renewables and you know having stranded costs in in gas and coal-fired plants. You know, if, if that's capital investment that was made. 10 and 20 years ago, and you're not allowed to recover it over the life of the asset, you know, the shareholder is probably more at risk there than you would be from, from harm of the big tech companies. And the other thing is, until very recently, these big tech companies were not that expensive. And so, you know, you could probably tolerate a little bit of regulation as well. But here in the last couple of years, they've gotten so expensive that, that really any threat on the regulatory front becomes that much riskier to the shareholder. Yeah, I truly have very little to add on this topic. I, I agree. It's a great question, John. I think it's just really hard to answer. I think even if I were an expert, I would probably give you a on the one hand, on the other hand kind of answer that wouldn't be all that helpful. And and what do you guys think of um, this in a global context where you know the tech companies, for better or worse, are kind of national champions? And then you got, you know, similarly large Chinese companies, for example. And, you know, you take something like artificial intelligence, the development of that, or just kind of having that uh, data on, you know, millions and millions of 
people and so forth. So I guess what I'm alluding to is, you know, could the breakup impact, um, you know, the U.S. more strategically? I mean, I know that's a popular argument. I don't know if anyone knows the answer. Um, it's not like there. In China, you have some of these super apps, and we haven't really ended up in that state. And maybe you even get more innovation on adding layers of functionality if some of these companies were separate uh, instead of part of one conglomerate, like you know, Core Blue at Facebook and Instagram. Um, that each could pursue their own mandate instead of kind of tinkering it in ways where, you know, they wanted the same functionality to work on both. Or, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I'm kind of like spitballing off the top of my head, but, you know, I think there's something to be said about internet uh, being a land where power laws are dominant, scale truly matters. Um, but I don't necessarily think you need all these disparate companies to exist under one umbrella to reap the benefits of scale. I think in some ways, Google proves the dismerit of that structure um, in their inability to generate returns on some of their non-core search forays. Um, so, I mean, yeah, kind of like Phil said, I, I, I end up in the on the one hand, on the other hand, because on the other side, yeah, with data and with where things can go from here, there very well might be some missed opportunities. But uh, certainly don't think our tech sector is lacking for international competitive prowess. We're pretty uh, dominant outside of China. So yeah, I, it's, it's a non-answer answer. But you know, one of the things I'm most intrigued by is when you inject major change, um, interesting things happen. And you know, with AT&T, it really actually was interesting. And I, you know, I, I, I kind of think it was regulators doing the right thing and it create and but it was partly because regulators created the wrong structure to exist for so long. But it actually, you know, accelerated innovation and let a lot of new things happen and created a lot of experimentation that wouldn't have otherwise had an opportunity. Um, so maybe that helps us even better uh, position for the future of technology. I don't really know. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll wrap it up there, guys. Uh, thank you so much for a terrific discussion. Uh, great to have uh, all three, and I hope uh, all of you will be with us next week. So uh, thanks all for listening as well. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.